The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Yo! That's really, ooh, that's kind of scary. How are we doing, guys? Fantastic. I had way too many cups of coffee. Hey, there's coffee, uh, coffee back in the corner if anybody wants it. If you guys are new, bathrooms are right through this door or that door, either one, um, either way. Hey, quick announcement, guys, before we get going. Um, so next Wednesday, uh, the Wednesday after this week, okay, next Wednesday, uh, we are going to be here, but we're going to mix it up a little bit. We're going to take just a brief pause from our uh, Old Testament overview, and we're going to do a worship night and a fellowship night which is going to be rad. So guys, be sure to come out for that. Um, there is no Awanas that night, but there is childcare birth through five years old. So for the little wiggly ones, there's childcare. And for the kids that are a little older, bring them in. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great uh, environment, even for them to run around and stuff. Um, the junior hires will be in here. The high schoolers will be in here. Uh, Mitch and I are going to lead some worship, some acoustic worship. And, um, and then we're going to have sugar at the end, which is just a great way to you know, end the day, <laughs> eat, a bunch, eat a bunch of sugar that your body can't process and then go to bed. It's awesome. Um, anyways, guys, we're, we're in the Old Testament overview series right now, um, as you can see up there. And basically what the Old Testament overview series is, is we wanted to give you guys kind of a big snapshot of what the Old Testament really is. And, and the only way to really do that without spending like five years uh, working through it is to kind of take a, a really uh, rapid pace through it. So that's kind of what we've been doing. Uh, we've been tackling one book a night and we've worked our way all the way up to the book of Joshua. So guys, grab your Bibles, open them on up to the book of Joshua. I'm going to pray real quick and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, I'm just so thankful tonight that uh, you're a God who loves us. Lord, that, that may seem obvious, God, but it's the, it seems to be the thing that we uh, have the hardest time remembering. Lord, every day, God, I forget just how much you love me. And so many in this room tonight, God, have so many times forgotten just how much you love us. I thank you for the proof of that, that we have and behold in your son, Jesus. I thank you for the proof that we see in your redeeming hand in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, as Lord, we just see you working. And God, tonight I just pray that Holy Spirit, you would be here manifesting Christ, making much of Christ in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds, in every way. And God, may we just sit like your disciples, Lord, at your feet, not at my feet, at your feet, Jesus. You are our pastor. You are our leader. You are our rabbi. And tonight, God, we want to sit and behold your truth. We want to have ears to hear your voice, to be your sheep. And God, we pray that our hearts and our minds would be moldable because we know that our hearts and our minds are not right on their own. So Lord, we just, we just, we pray and we invite you to speak to us tonight. Jesus' name, amen. Hey, turn to your neighbor really quick and tell them that God wants you to live in his victory. Come on. God wants you to live in his victory. How many of you guys know out there, Christianity is a battle, okay? Christianity is a battle. It, it is not uh, an easy thing. 
Um, even though when we were in youth group, we might have got convinced by our youth pastor that as soon as we got saved, everything was going to be fun and roses, um, and Jesus was your homeboy, and everything was going to be great. But in reality, you guys know if you've lived some time, lived some life with Jesus, that life as a Christian is hard. It's almost, uh, at times, feels kind of like a battle. Um, Christianity is not the end of struggle, but rather it oftentimes is the opening of the door to a whole new set of struggles. Because when you become a Christian, you sort of take on this, well, you don't sort of, you take on a new identity. You become a new person, you're reborn. And when you're reborn, you still have this old person that's like sort of lingering. And you war back and forth between the old person and the new person. Christianity is a, is a battle, it's a struggle. And Jesus told us this in Matthew 10, 35. He says, for I have come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So if you don't, ladies, if you don't get along with your mother-in-law, it's Jesus's fault, okay? He spoke that into existence. Um, No, but seriously, Jesus came and he said, look, this thing called Christianity, this thing um, to be a follower of Jesus is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be tense at times. It's going to be hard. It's going to feel a lot like conflict. It's going to feel a lot like battle. The Christian life is literally the war of two identities. It's the war of who you were and the war of who God has made you. Now, Joshua is a fantastic representation of this tension that we all feel. Joshua is the book of battles. If you uh, have noticed every single book, I like to call it the book of something. Genesis was the book of beginnings, and Exodus was the book of slavery and redemption. Leviticus was the book of holiness. Uh, Let's see if I can remember them all. Uh, Deuteronomy was the book of sanctification. Mm, I forgot them all. Numbers was sanctification, right? You guys are supposed to, you're supposed to know these things, because... Wow, this is sad. I can't remember. We've given all of them a title. If you'd like to listen to them, you can go back and find them on MP3 because I forgot everything I've preached in the last five months or five weeks. Anyways, Joshua is the book of battle, okay? If you're familiar with the book, it's rad. It's epic. It's like probably most guys' favorite book because it's just chock full of battle scenes and, and war and all kinds of just craziness. Now, here's the backstory. Here's how we got to the book of Joshua. We just finished up last week what was called the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also called the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. Okay, and after the Pentateuch, it sort of turns a corner. And after all of this time that Israel's been wandering in the wilderness, after they were set free from uh, Egypt, and, and God's been preparing them and um, giving them the, uh, the Levitical system and giving them the law and all of these things, after all of these years, after 40 years, a generation finally dies off uh, that was unwilling to go into the promised land, and God says, okay, now it's time. It's time for you, Israel, my people that are called by my name, it's time for you to actually go and enter into the promised land. And Joshua is exciting because after all of this time, it's finally here. It's time to go into the promised land. That's exactly what the, the, the book of Joshua is. But they don't just get to march right in, okay? They don't just get to walk and waltz right in. There's some things that have to happen first. There's some battles that have to take place in order for them to assume this land that God has already promised them. Now, a couple things I just want to kind of tease you with really quick before we uh, get into sort of the meat of the book. And, And that is this, is that Joshua is the book of battles, but it's not the book of Israel's battle. Okay? Joshua is the book of battles, but it's not the book of Israel's battle. It's actually the book of God's battle, okay? 
The point of Joshua is not to point to the strategic maneuverings of Joshua and his men. It's not to point to uh, how clever and how strong and how witty the Israelites were because they weren't. Okay, they were many in number, but they were sort of a rabble group that had been wandering in the wilderness for many years. Okay? The book of Joshua is not a testament to the, the battle of Israel or the conquerings of Israel or the, the victory of Israel. The book of Joshua is a testament to the victory of God. Okay? It's a testament to the victory of God. And Joshua is also not a book about Israel fighting Canaanites. You know, I mean, it is. Most of the stories are about them fighting Canaanites. But really, the, the true theme, the true narrative that weaves its way through the book of Joshua is about God trying to teach Israel to fight by living within his victory. It's about God trying to work out of Israel this propensity to want to be their own God, to be their own strength. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. If you remember God's goal for Israel, and this is something I keep coming back to every single book, I keep asking myself as I read these stories, God, what was your goal for Israel? Okay, God's goal for Israel was not primarily for them to get delivered into the promised land. That was not the point. The point was that God was trying to make a nation, a people group that were set apart holy for his purposes, a people that didn't rely on themselves and their own strength, that didn't lean to their own understanding, but a people that actually listened and leaned and followed the Lord. And this is a battle that God is continually trying to work in and through his people. The narrative of Joshua is not just a narrative of victory. There's actually also a lot of defeat in this book. But ultimately what we'll see is it's victory, when God was fighting the battle, and it's defeat when they were fighting the battle. Does that make sense? Okay. If you guys got your Bibles, just flip them open real quick to the beginning of Joshua. I just want to read for you. Obviously, we're not going to read the whole book. We don't have time. But I do want to read for you the first nine verses because it sort of sets the table for this book. It says in verse 1 of Joshua 1, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, and that doesn't mean he didn't have any parents, okay? Just so you guys, just to clarify it, son of none. Um, come on, that was, that was good. Like, son of none? Okay. Um, I'll try it again some other day. Um, Ten years, I'll preach, Moses, I'll preach Joshua again. Uh, said to Joshua, the son of none, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your feet will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. So pause right there. God is saying that this land that you're going into has been given to you already. Okay, now you have to go claim it, but it's already your land. Okay, God owns it, and he's given you the title deed to it. Now go get it. Okay. Wherever your foot will tread, that is your land. In verse 4, it says, From the wilderness and this uh, Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Does that sound like familiar language? Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do everything to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's sort of the pep talk, right? Before they go in and begin uh, to, to have battle and war breaks out. This is the call of God to his people to walk in his victory, okay? He says, if you walk in my victory, if you walk in my way, if you walk in my wake, if you walk in my shadow, if you walk behind me and let me take care of business for you, Israel, you're gonna be victorious. If you don't, if you try to be like the Canaanites, if you try to live worldly, then it's not gonna work out. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. So the theme of Joshua, if you're taking notes, I, I gave you guys all that handout in there. Um, this is the first question in there. The theme of Joshua is the battle to fight in God's victory. Okay? The battle, again, the battle is not against the Canaanites. The battle is trying to learn to fight in God's victory because it's God's battle. It's God's story. Joshua is God's battle. So having set the table a little bit here, let's kind of take a look at the book. Um, I'll just spend about five or 10 minutes just kind of talking about what the narrative story of, of it is. Obviously there's 24 chapters, so we're not gonna be able to, to really look at every single story, but here's, here's a helpful outline. If you guys um, ha have your paper, you wanna write this down, this is a great way to kind of uh, break Joshua into sections. Um, in the, in the, the handout, I put five sections. It was a typo. It should be four sections. Um, so, so here's the four sections that Joshua can be split into. Okay, the first is chapters one through five, and this is entering the promised land. Okay, so first they enter the promised land. Then chapters six through 12, conquering the promised land. So we have entering the promised land. We have conquering the promised land. Then 13 through 22, we have dividing the promised land. And 23 through 24 is Joshua preaches in the promised land. Okay, so four chunks, and that kind of helps you in your mind to divide it out a little bit. Let's start with the first one, chapters one through five, uh, entering the promised land. So in chapter one, as we just read, God commissions Joshua, right? He says, okay, Moses is gone. Moses is dead. As we saw last week uh, in the book of Deuteronomy, remember God said, it is, it is imperative that you go, Moses. <laughs> you must die so that this new leader can come in and lead this new generation for God to do this new work. But it's also important to understand that Joshua was the new Moses, and, and God makes that very clear. Joshua is now taking the baton from Moses. Now he is the leader. He is the one that they're looking to. And chapter one is really God um, sort of coronating, if you will, or commissioning Joshua into this position or this role of commander in chief. And then chapter two, he does what any good leader would do. He gets reconnaissance. Give me the information. Tell me what we're dealing with. Tell me who our enemies are. Tell me how big they are. Tell me what their numbers are. So in chapter two, the new leader, Joshua, he sends spies again, just like Moses did back in the book of Numbers. 
he sends spies again into the land of Canaan. And this time, it goes a whole lot better than it did the last time. If you remember in the book of Numbers, they sent spies into the land of Canaan and they came back freaked out because, oh, they're giants and there's no way that we can possibly defeat them. And they decided not to go in. Well, this time it goes a whole lot better. This time they meet a woman named Rahab, who was a harlot, a prostitute, okay, uh, in, in a pagan land of, uh, of these Canaanites. And she actually says, I'm gonna be on your side. She chooses to be on the Lord's side and she helps them, she aids them. And through her, uh, they find out some information that these Canaanites that they're gonna go in and take out actually are fearful of the Israelites. And this is good news, right? You send in spies to reconnaissance and figure out what your enemy is thinking and they come back and say, the enemy is terrified of you. That's good news, okay? So they're, they're pumped up now. They're ready to go and they have some people on their side as well. In chapter 3, Israel gets ready to finally leave this barren desert land that they've been wandering in for 40 years. They mount up and they're ready to cross the Jordan River, which leads them into the land that God promised them. Now, how are they going to get across? Right? They have um, hundreds of thousands of people, probably lots of livestock at this time. God miraculously, again in his provision, parts the Jordan River. Now, a lot of you may not realize that. Actually, God actually parted two rivers. He didn't not only just part the Red Sea, but he also parted the Jordan. Now, I saw the Jordan in Israel, and it looked kind of like the Klamath. I mean, it was not very big, but I'm assuming it was probably a lot bigger back then because they've taken a lot of water out of it uh, for, since then. But anyways, God parts the Jordan River for them. They are able to cross through on dry lands. And then they, they decide to make a testament to God once they get on the other side. So they take 12 stones and they put 12 stones on one side, 12 stones in the bottom of the river, and 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes on the side that they just crossed. And that was so that future generations, when they came back, would be reminded of God's faithfulness, that God fought for them, that God parted the Jordan River so that they could get through. And then the next part uh, gets even better. Before they go and begin to engage the enemy in battle, uh, God says, okay, guys, it's time, to, it's time to circumcise yourselves. Whew, okay, yeah, like talk about a great housewarming gift. You know, welcome home, Israelites. Okay, I need you guys to circumcise yourself, and then we're going to go in. Um, that would be absolutely terrible. So they, they circumcise themselves, which again, not to make light of that, but um, they circumcise, which is really a symbol or a sign of God saying, you are my people. Okay, that was the symbol that, that God, that they were set apart, that they were different than the Gentiles. So after that happens, they celebrate Passover, which if you remember was to remind them once again of, of Jesus delivering them, fighting for them um, in, back in Egypt. So they, they celebrate Passover and then it's time to go into battle. Now chapter six through eight, we find two key battles. These are the battles that they really go into the majority of the detail in, in the book. And, and the interesting thing about these two battles is we find this really awesome contrast between the two. See, in one battle, Israel's totally victorious. And in another battle, not so much. The first battle you guys are probably familiar with, you probably heard about it when you were a kid, and that's the Battle of Jericho. Okay, uh, they go up to, to one of the first cities that they come across of in this land called Jericho, and God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the gates of the city, specifically with the Ark of the Covenant at your front, so that they know that it's the Lord your God. Okay, now can you imagine that? God's like, hey, go up to this well-fortified city, pull out this box that I told you to make, and just walk around it. Okay, I mean, that would be, it would be insane. 
Uh, but they did it, okay? They did it, and sure enough, after the seventh time around, the walls fall down, they go in, they conquer this, it's a cakewalk. God fights the battle for them. That's the battle of Jericho. Now, God told them specifically, hey, this stuff in Jericho is not for you, okay? I don't want you taking any of the loot. I don't want you taking any of the bounty or anything like that. Just leave it all. It's not yours. Destroy it. One guy decides he's not going to listen to the Lord. Name? Achan, okay? Achan stole the bacon, so I always remember that, you know? I don't know. <laughs> Which doesn't really make sense because they're Jewish, so they can't, even, they can't even have bacon. But whatever, Achan steals the bacon. Um... <laughs> Anyways, uh, and because of that, because of his disobedience, the next battle that they go into, unbeknownst to them, doesn't go so well. Okay, they're all puffed up. They're confident. Oh, man, we just took out Jericho. No problem. God just dropped the walls, and we came in, and we had no issue at all taking this huge city. And now we go up to the next city of Ai, and all of a sudden, they're defeated. Okay, now what happened? God's not fighting for them anymore, Right? There's sin in their camp. Something has changed and they don't know it. Achan has stole and, and taken from what the Lord said not to take. And because of that, God does not fight for them and they lose. Okay? Fortunately, repentance happens. They deal with Achan and God is on their side again and they end up being victorious. But what we have there is this marvelous portrait that we'll look at more in depth of really what it looks like when you fight the battle or when God fights the battle. Okay, it's very different and it's very clear for us to see in the book of Joshua. Chapter nine, all the nations around hear about Israel's victory. News is spreading of this nation, this huge ginormous people group that is marching throughout Canaan and is, is taking out city by city and they're worried about it. Okay, so they form this huge alliance to basically gang up on and t try to take out Israel, all except for one called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites is kind of a fun story in chapter nine. The Gibeonites, they, they say, let's try to dupe Israel. Because Israel wasn't really supposed to make alliances with the Canaanites. Okay, God's command for them was to take them out completely. But the Gibeonites were, were pretty slick. They said, let's dress up and look like we're just sort of these uh, traveling, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, gypsy. Look, like, well, let's just... Let's just try to make it look like we're, 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 just, uh, we're not really a nation, not really a city. And then maybe we can trick uh, Joshua and, his, and, and these Israelites into making a covenant with us. And so they do that. Joshua and them, they take the bait. And they say, okay, enter into a covenant with them. Ends up turning out that, oh, they're Canaanites as well. But at least they have some kind of an ally. Chapters 10 through 11, uh, all of these nations gang up on Israel. Uh, they, they go to battle with uh, the Gibeonites. Specifically, Israel comes to their aid, and, and we have a huge, a huge battle there. And then really, guys, the rest of that, those chapters, 10 through 11, is just like the list of all of the victories that Israel has. Battle after battle after battle. Okay, it's the book of battle. It's the, got that? It's the book of battle. It's Joshua leading Israel from battle to battle continually. Then chapters 13 through 22, interestingly enough, before the Canaanites are actually all gotten rid of, they begin to split up the land and settle, okay? Uh, they don't really finish the job. They kind of stop short, and they say, okay, let's start settling the land. So chapters 13 through 22 is probably the most boring part of the book, uh, frankly, and that's where Joshua is basically just parsing out the land, okay? You, this tribe take this, and that tribe take that, and that's kind of the part where everybody kind of goes, oh, this was a really exciting book, and now it's, it's not so exciting. Um, and then chapters 23 through 24 is really similar to the book of Deuteronomy, 
Joshua ends with sort of giving these speeches or these sermons to Israel, kind of trying to prepare them for the next generation. Joshua wasn't a young man. You know, Joshua lived quite a, quite a few years in the wilderness along with Moses. So he gives these speeches in chapters 23 and 24 to, to kind of hold out to them, look guys, there's two ways that you can go forward from here, okay? There's two ways that you can go forward. Either you can fight in God's victory or you can fight in your own, okay? And he's just reminding them, putting it before their eyes again. Make your decision this day, Israel. Are you going to be the Lord's? Are you going to fight in his victory, victory or are you going to fight in yours? And that's the book of Joshua, okay? In a really, really, really fast nutshell. Uh, I encourage you guys to go back and read it because it's rich and there's so much, so much good there and so much that I couldn't and didn't get to. But what can we as Christians learn from the book of battle? Okay, what, what does this book have for us to learn um, tonight? Well, I, I would ask the, the question first. I would ask, what, it, what do we as Christians battle? What is it that we as Christians battle? Um, the first thing that comes to my mind, obviously, is the world, the flesh, the devil, sin, right? As Christians, we're, we're battling uh, all of these different kinds of things throughout our life. But as I started thinking about that, I thought of verses like Romans 8.37, which says this. It says, now, in all these things, we, okay, Christians, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, now that, that's interesting. So as, as Christians, we're, we're, we're battling these things, but at the same time, through Christ, we are more than conquerors of these things. Kind of Interesting. Jesus even said in John 16, 33, he said to his disciples, he said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Okay, not an option, by the way. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Okay, so it's interesting because as Christians, we're actually not really postured in a place of battle, are we? Even though we seem to have to struggle with sin and struggle with the flesh and struggle with the devil and all of these things as Christians, positionally, we actually are more than conquerors. We have overcome the world. Now, the Greek word for overcome there is actually nikeo. And I, I bring that up because the, that means total victory. It's not partial victory. It's not like kind of victory. It's not like, yeah, it will be victory once we go to heaven, but actually we as Christians are postured in a position of total victory. That word Nikeo actually is where we get Nike. Okay. Total victory, right? Cause you're, you're the boss when you wear Nikes, I guess. I don't know. Um, welcome to our culture. So total victory. This is Christianity is, is sitting in a place of total victory. You say, but I don't feel like I'm living in total victory. I don't feel like I'm living in total victory. What, what, what Christianity is kind of like this. You remember Roosevelt said, uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember that quote? Okay. It, was that true for them? No. There's all kinds of things to fear, right? That quote is true for the Christian. It is true for the Christian because every battle has been won in Christ already. What did he say on the cross? It is finished. Conquered. Death, beaten, sin, extinguished, okay? We are more than conquerors in the victory of Christ. The only thing we have to fear is the fear of something that really is not exist 
Interesting to think about, right? Now, the book of Joshua is the call, again, of God's people to live within his victory versus their own strength. But here's the interesting thing about um, the word battle, okay? In the beginning, I sort of opened up by saying Christianity feels like a battle sometimes. We battle the flesh, we battle this, we battle that. But battle has some interesting connotations that I think we need to work out uh, a little bit, okay? First of all, you know, battle, when you think of battle, uh, battles are fought by strength and perseverance, right? Battles are fought for self-preservation, okay? I'm going to fight a battle because someone is threatening me, someone is, is trying to hurt me, and I'm going to fight back. That's what battle is, right? Battle is fought with grit and determination. Battles are fought for self-progression. I'm moving myself forward, through battle, okay, we're progressing. I mean, isn't that the whole point of the battlefield is, is you take the next city, you take the next piece of land, you advance, you progress, you press forward you, 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 in an aggressive way, you, you, you move forward. That's what battle is. And lastly, battles are for victory, right? Like that's the point of battle. But it's interesting, Jesus in Mark 8.34, he, he gives us a glimpse into what battle looks like for you and I. As Christians, he says, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would be a follower of me, if anyone would be a believer, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's an interesting, that, that paints a very different picture than the battle I just described, right? Battle is, is perseverance, it's self-preservation, it's grit, determination, progression, uh, fought for victory, but this is something entirely different, the battle that Jesus is calling us to is not a battle dependent on strength, but it's actually a battle dependent on weakness. See, to battle as a Christian is not to be strong. In fact, as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, right? Whereas Paul said, it's through, God's, or it's through our weakness that God's strength can be made full. So as Christians, we don't battle through determination and grit and strength and power. We battle actually through weakness, Counterintuitive. Our battle as Christians is not a battle of self-preservation. It's a battle of self-sacrifice and self-denial. Okay? It's not I'm fighting because someone's trying to hurt me. As Christians, we say I'm actually willing to be hurt. I'm actually going to put myself in harm's way instead of fighting back, right? In Christianity, it's not a battle of self-progression, moving myself forward. It's a, a battle of self-digression. It's I'm subtracting. I'm, I'm decreasing. And lastly, and this is, this is key, you might even write this down, battle is fought for victory, but battle in, in the battle that Jesus is talking about is fought to simply to remain in the tracks of the victor. The battle has already been won. As Christians, to fight this battle is to simply remain in the victory of Jesus that has already won this battle for us. The call of battle is the call of self-denial. And this is what Jesus says. He says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. The call to follow Jesus is not the kind of battle that we think of. It's entirely different. Now, if self-denial, if denying self is the battle that we wage, okay, what does that look like? Jesus' entire ministry, if you remember, Jesus' entire ministry was uh, him dying to himself. Jesus came 
the first time, not with the sword, right? Not like he's going to come in Revelation. He came with truth. He came with sacrifice. He came as a servant. And we are called into that as well. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said, the great prince of preachers. He says, I have now, con- I have now concentrated all of my prayers into one. And that one is this, that I may die to self and live holy to him. As Christians, we aren't necessarily battling, listen, as Christians, we aren't necessarily battling the world, battling the flesh, battling the devil. Those things are already conquered. As Christians, we are battling the temptation to step out of his victory and into our own. Jesus has taken the hill. He has conquered It is finished, he said, right? What we battle as Christians now is this temptation to say, I know you've conquered the hill, Jesus, but I'm gonna go find my own way up. Christianity is dying to self. It is putting to death this idea that I am in charge of my life, that I am the ruler of my life. It is living within the victory of Christ within us. Richard Baxter, he said this, He said, I take the love of God and self-denial to be the sum of all saving grace and religion. Self-denial, the the relinquishing of self is key. Now, everything in culture pushes back against this, right? This concept that as Christians, we battle by decreasing, that we battle not through progression, but digression. This is completely counterintuitive to our culture because, listen, everything in our culture is obsessed with self. We are the culture of self, okay? Give you some examples. You ever heard of something called the selfie? It's the epitome of our culture, right? Selfie. We are a self-obsessed culture. We, we, we hear the, the term self-made man or self-made woman, right? That's like the, the epitome uh, of the win in our culture. Like we watch Shark Tank and we see these guys up there and we think, oh, they're self-made. Okay, what does that mean? It means I got up here on my own strength. Nobody helped me. Nobody helped I'm, I'm self-made, okay? I'm self-made. Self-esteem is thrown out as a good thing. It used to be 100 years ago that self-esteem was actually called something else. It was called pride. And now, self-esteem is like the win, okay? It's like the cherry on top of life. Oh, dude, you got a lot of self-esteem. He's the man. How did that shift? We watch Disney movies that at the very heart of them have the message of believe in yourself, right? It's like we've taken some kind of weird, twisted, watered-down version of Eastern religion, and, and it's just permeated our culture where we look within. That's what Eastern religion is. You look within to self to find meaning and truth, to find reality through looking inside, Lifestyle blogs, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of these things are symptoms of the fact that we live in a culture that is obsessed with ourselves. We can't just enjoy a time with our family. We have to post it, okay? We can't just find something clever in the Bible. We have to tweet it. We can't just find something politically that we think is interesting. We have to tweet it out, right? We have to. We're obsessed with self. We have self-transportation. We have iTunes, right? (laughs) I mean, we drive our car wherever we want. We listen to music, however loud we want. Whatever song we want used to be that you had to buy a whole CD. Now you can just buy one, just pick it, and and you choose what song you want when you want it. We have the cell phone, right? The cell phone. I don't know if that's really what that means, but I was like thinking of self words. I'm like, hey, cell phone. 
We have the, do, the DIY, the do-it-yourself, right? I mean, we're a self-obsessed culture, and when the people of a nation, listen, when the people of a nation have nothing to live for but themselves, self is what they live for, okay? For the last 60 years, our country has been growing increasingly into a nation of self because we live for nothing other than ourself. We live for nothing bigger than ourself. Self has been the narrative and the mantra of our culture, Okay, has become the narrative, and, and not something that, that is just sneaking in, it's something that is being pressed upon us, and pressed upon our kids, that you are the most important thing, and you need to believe in yourself, and you look into your core, and find out who you are, and, and, and you, you, you own that. Self-esteem, it becomes the most important thing. If you guys got one of these, actually, I think you got a smaller version of it, but let's put it up on the screen even. This is something I just put together, because I want you guys to see what happens when you live obsessed with yourself, okay? This is, this is the cycle that so many people in our culture, including you and I, okay, um, constantly find ourselves in. And it starts with this. It starts with self-doubt and self-loathing, okay? I don't like myself. I don't like who I am. I don't like what I can do. And so, because of that, that leads to what's called self-illusion, so I don't like who I am, so I'm going to invent a new version of myself, self-illusion, okay? You, you create for yourself a false narrative uh, or an external persona of yourself. Don't like who I am, here's who I want to be. And number three, that leads to self-expression. Now, this is the big one in our culture, right? Everyone finds this new identity, okay? Uh, and then they're all about expressing it. Okay, so, so my blog, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, everything is about me expressing myself and my love of self and who I am, right? Now, self-expression leads to self-dependency, okay? Where who is it that you look to to answer your problems? Yourself. Who is it that you look to to find joy? Yourself. This new identity that you've created for yourself, which, of course, leads to self-worship, Self-worship looks like I will sacrifice anything for this idea of who I think I am. So you think for a moment that you're something special. You think for, for a moment that, oh, I, I'm really good at this or I'm really talented at that. Or, you, or maybe your identity becomes your sexuality or your, your identity becomes your body or your identity becomes your gender or your identity becomes your political view. And, and you, that becomes what you look to for strength and then you begin to sacrifice to that thing. I'll do anything, I'll give anything to keep this identity because I don't want to go back to who I am apart from it. And then inevitably, number six, self-worship leads to self-disillusionment, where you realize that you're not what you thought you were, that you don't have what it takes, that you're not as strong as you thought you were, that you can't find the joy that you thought you could find through this illusion that you lived in, which leads right back to what? Self-doubt and self-loathing. This is the cycle of living for yourself that we and our culture are sucked into continually. We're sucked into it and we go round and round and round. The self-epidemic, I'm calling it, okay? The self-epidemic of our culture. And listen, this is not limited to secular world, Okay, there's another cycle that we get sucked into, and this one looks a lot more like Christianity, so this one sneaks sort of through the cracks a little bit more, okay? But here's another cycle. This is called the cycle of religious self-rule. Again, it's all about me, okay? It's all about me. 
If, if this is a little too secular for you, if this is a little too worldly for you, then this is the religious version of it, okay? So again, we start with what? Self-doubt, self-loathing, okay? Don't like myself. Uh, you stand inadequate and unable to fix yourself, okay? Uh, I don't like who I am. I don't look like who God's made me. So in the religious self-rule cycle, that leads into what? Guilt and shame. Okay, I don't like who I am. I don't like how I fail. I don't like my weakness. So now I feel guilt. I feel shame. And that looks really pious and that looks really religious, right? Because it always looks good to feel bad about who you are. Okay, uh, that's why, you know, you know uh, humility sometimes is really pride. People think they're being humble, but really they're being self-obsessed. Oh, poor me. I don't like who I am. I'm, such, I'm so fat. I'm so stupid. I'm so this. I'm so that. You're really just self-obsessed. You're self-obsessed about who you think that you aren't, okay? So self-loathing leads to guilt and shame. Guilt and shame leads, leads to, and religion leads to this, self-medicated penance. I don't like who I am. I feel bad about it. So I'm going to self-medicate for myself some kind of religious outworking to make myself feel better, okay? Maybe that's Hail Mary's. Maybe that's I need to go to church more. Maybe that's I need to listen to Christian music more. Maybe that's I should throw out some DVDs. Maybe that's I should apologize to that person. And maybe those are all good things. But you're doing it in order to try to feel better about who you are. Okay, that's the religious cycle. Now, self-medicated penance leads to self-produced forgiveness. Okay, I can let myself off the hook now because I did X, Y, and Z. Because I went through these hoops, now I feel better about who I am. Which, of course, leads to what? Self-righteousness. Then you're puffed up, right? Hey, let me tell you what I did when I struggled with that. Let me tell you the answer to that. Let me tell you the, how I fixed that. Let me tell you what you should be doing. You should be homeschooling. You should be watching these kind of movies. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. You should be breastfeeding until your kid's six years old. Self-righteousness, right? Whatever it is, okay? Whatever thing that you think is going to ultimately save you. Um, and you press it on other people. Because you think that that saved you, but it didn't. It didn't. It just created a sense of religious arrogance in you. And self-righteousness always inevitably leads to self-failure. Where you realize that you really aren't fixed. It didn't really change anything. You weren't able to alleviate the guilt. You weren't able to alleviate the stress and the pain, which leads right back into self-doubt and self-loathing. You getting where I'm going with this? This is what it looks like to live your own life. This is what it looks like to live in self-rule, self-reliance. And this is the cycle that you and I are caught up in almost every other day. God's calling for you and I is not to live in self-rule. It's not to live in self-reliance. It's to live in the power of his victory. It's to live under his rule, with him at the center Again, we saw this contrasted in Joshua, didn't we? Between Ai and between Jericho, it's obvious. So just like the Israelites, we as Christians are to live not out of our own strength and not out of our own victory, but in the victory of Christ's complete work and salvation. But, here's the question, but when everything in us is set to live for self, okay, so, okay, Sam, yeah, I know, I should be living in the victory of Christ, but everything in me is default set to live for myself. Everything in me is default set to live by my own strength, not to live in Christ's perfect strength and victory. So how do we live in Christ's victory? And just a few things. 
on that, if you want to jot these down. The first one is this. How do we live in Christ's victory? First thing is, is that understanding that living in Christ's victory begins in the mind. Okay? Living in Christ's victory begins in the mind. Look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the war, the battle that you and I wage, it's not just like Israel's where we're fighting flesh and blood, okay? He said the war that we're fighting is actually a war of the mind, and the strongholds that we have are not physical. The strongholds that we have isn't like, oh, whoops, I'm not justified. No, you're justified. The strongholds that you have are in your mind. They're, they're you choosing in your brain to not believe the victory that is found or been purchased for you by Christ. It's lies. Satan has been bound. He's been defeated. Sin has been paid for. Death has been beaten. It is finished. And the only thing that Satan can do f- to us is talk. That's all that he can do. All that he can do is try to convince you to step out of the victory of Christ into your own strength, into self. That's all that he can do. The attack is in your mind. A.W. Pink said this. He said, daily living by faith on Christ is what makes the difference between the sickly and the healthy Christian, between the defeated and the victorious saint. Okay, this willingness to every day remind ourselves that I am not the point, and I am not in charge of my life, and I am not running my life, and I am not ruling my life, that Christ is. And I'm going to choose every day to step into the victory that he has already purchased for me. But it happens up here. It happens in your mind. It's an understanding of what he's done. Ephesians 6, you guys are familiar with this in verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the, what? Schemes of the devil. That's all he can do. Is scheme and lie and try to convince you that Jesus is not enough for you. Try to convince you to live for yourself, okay? So he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the battle that Christians wage. And then he goes on, he says, therefore take up the whole armor of God. And he lists it. He says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having first, what? Fastened on the belt of truth. Now I want you to notice as I go through these quickly, every single one of these has to do with you understanding the gospel. Satan's not like waiting to smack you upside the head. He's not waiting around the corner to jump you. He's trying to trick you. He's trying to lie to you to get you to trust yourself. What happened in the garden? God told Adam and Eve, I want you to listen to me. I want you to live under my rule. And what did, Adam, what did Satan do to Eve? He convinced her to live under her rule, 
to take her advice, to live her way, to live for self. It was a lie that he gave to her. So look at what Paul says, fastened on the belt of truth. Well, what is the belt of truth? It's knowing the truth of what he's done for you. It's just simply fastened around the belt of saying, no, I know who I am in Jesus. I know what he's done for me. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, that's just simply knowing the truth that he's given us his righteousness on the cross. Well, you don't have any righteousness of your own, right? Your righteousness is his. And that breastplate that deflects is simply an understanding, a, a knowing, a believing that his righteousness is imputed to you. 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Okay, your shoes are simply standing in the firmness in the foundation of the gospel. Well, guess what? The gospel is what God did for you. It's an understanding of what God did for you. And lastly, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Okay, it's simply believing what he's done for us. Are you noticing what I'm saying here? All of what Paul is saying, you saying, as you get ready for battle as a Christian, it has everything to do with you simply believing what Christ has done for you. That's what battle is. It's eliminating this idea of self-living and living within God's rule. But it starts in the mind. Now, number two, how do we live in Christ's victory? Number two, living in Christ's victory is seeing God's sovereign plan for your battles. What that, what that, what that means is that, that God is not allowing you to battle and struggle and go through life as a Christian with, 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 with tension and all the things that we deal with on accident. It's all for a reason. It's all on purpose. You see, again, God's point was not for, for Israel to come in and take out the Canaanites. He didn't need them to do that. God could have caused a plague to come and the Canaanites could have all died. Israel could have walked right in. God strategically in his sovereignty and in his love allowed there to be Canaanites in the land. You ever think about that? Because he was trying to teach Israel that he was their victory. He was their victory. He allowed the Canaanites to be there. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says this. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. After he goes on this rant, okay, about all of the, the persecution and the hardship of what it is to be a Christian for them, he prefaces it by saying, so that you may know the surpassing power of God. He allows battles into your life so that he can be your victory. Can I say that again? He allows battles into your life so that he can be your victory because he's trying to get it through our thick skulls that we are not strong enough to conquer anything on our own. He is our victory. And it's our choice as Christians whether we're gonna step into that victory and live out of that victory and follow him up the hill or whether we're gonna go pave our own way and get stuck in a cycle of self-life. That's the choice. Victory is a small thing to the Lord. 
Our battles are merely tools in his hands to shape us. Number three, and this is kind of the most important one. This is kind of what I had on my heart for you guys. Number three is this. How do we live in the victory of Christ? Number three, living in Christ's victory is not a trajectory, it's a cycle. And we think of the word cycle as a negative thing, right? You know, like I used it in a, a minute ago, you know, the cycle of self cycle of self-sufficiency, whatever. The cycle usually is thought of as being a negative thing, but in, in Christianity, God's not calling us as Christians to this trajectory so much like we'd like to think of. Okay, here's the steps of sanctification. You know, year 20, I'm here, and year 10, I'm here, and, and that's what I used to think of when I thought of sanctification. When I first got saved, I'm like, cool, you know, I'm a new believer, and in 30 years, I'm gonna be like Yoda, you know? Just like move things with my hands, you know, and that's, that's Christianity. It's this trajectory. It's this ladder, if you will, climbing to this higher position. But that's not God's intent for us to grow as Christians. It's actually a cycle. It's a cycle like this. There's a false, before we get to that, there's a false dichotomy in, in scripture. And I've heard people say it before, and I completely disagree with it. And that dichotomy is that there's milk doctrine and meat doctrine. And milk doctrine is for babies, and meat doctrine is for, uh, you know, mature Christians. Okay, those, that's not true. You, you don't get saved with the milk of the gospel and then move on to more things. There's not milk and meat doctrines. There's milk and meat understandings of doctrines. There's a milk understanding of the love of God, and there's a meat understanding of the love of God. There's a milk understanding of God's grace and there's a meat understanding of God's grace. But God's grace and God's love for you is not milk. It's not like, oh, I'm, that's baby stuff, on to works. No, it's not how it works. There's meat understandings of these complex truths of who God is. The sanctification for the believer is not this trajectory of, oh, now, milk, now it's time for meat. It's a cycle. It's a cycle of over and over and over again. And it looks kind of something like this. It starts again with what? Self-doubt, self-loathing. Because that's kind of where we all live. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I think deep down, we, a lot of us aren't happy with who we are. A lot of us feel insecure. A lot of us don't like who God's made us naturally to be. So we find ourselves at this place a lot. Well, self-doubt and self-loathing in God's provision or God's way for us to live should lead to what? The gospel. Okay, I don't like who I am, but guess what? The gospel tells you that it's not about you. Perfect. So instead of self-doubt and self-loathing leading to shame and guilt, or I'll just make up a new identity, in Christianity, self-doubt and loathing should lead us to say, well, that's okay, because I'm not the point. I'm not a big deal. I'm not what my life's about. So it's okay that I don't like who I am. God will work that out right? I mean, we need to like who God made us, but we're not the story. We're not the, we're not the star of the story. So self-doubt and loathing leads to, in God's uh, plan, is, leads to provision. And provision leads ideally to repentance. Because God has, by his son, purchased your salvation and given it freely, his goodness leads us to repentance, where we say, God, I'm broken, and I, and I don't like who I am, and I want to be who you want me to be. And I want to walk in what you have for me. This repentance is changing of direction. And then repentance leads to confession. Confession is this uh, 
God's is a grace of God for you to be able to release this burden of sin and, and get it off of your chest and move forward and, and move on. And then confession can lead to empowerment where the Holy Spirit comes in and gives you strength and allows you to, to walk and live out your faith and live out uh, what he's done for you on the cross through works. But inevitably, even after all that, even after repentance and even after empowerment and even after provision and all of these things, inevitably we become more and more aware as we grow of our sinfulness and our failure, which leads us right back to where we started. But my point is that that's actually not a bad thing. That in Christianity, you may feel like you're going in circles, but that's kind of what God wants you to do. You're not going backwards. You're not going backwards. I want to read you something. This is probably my favorite verse in the Bible, so pay attention. <laughs> Second Peter 3.18. This was a light bulb moment for me when I read this in regards to what, what is it to grow in the Lord? What is it to win our battles? Whatever. Second Peter 3.18. This is what Peter said. Now, this isn't young, angsty Peter. This isn't chop off you know, ears and jump with your coat on in the water, Peter. This isn't foot and mouth, Peter. This is a more mature Peter. Okay, this is, this is Peter that's grown a little bit in the Lord and, and has some maturity. And this is his last words to his believers that we have recorded. And here's what he says. He says, he says but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Now that verse fascinates me because what, what, what Peter is saying is, is a non-action. Grow in grace, that's like saying, Take a step by taking a step backwards. It's like grow in, how do you grow in grace? Grace is not an action. Grace is something that you receive. Exactly. Growing as a Christian is not growing in stature. It's not a trajectory. It's not I was here and now I'm here. Growing in sanctification, growing in grace is growing in your understanding of who God is and what he's done for you. And guess how we do that? We do it by going in circles. Because when you go in circles, you are continually reminded of his grace. Constantly, constantly coming back. Not to, it's not a milk understanding to remember that he has made provision for your sin. It's not a milk understanding to remember that you're forgiven. That is meat. And the Christian grows by coming back and back and back to the gospel over and over and over again. That's why we're a gospel-centered church, because we don't see it as something that we just say to non-saved people. We see it as something that grows us. If you want to grow, come back to the gospel. When you fail, come back to the gospel. When you want to love somebody, it's the gospel that will make you love them. When you want to do uh, more for the Lord, it's the gospel that will allow you to do more for the Lord. It's the understanding of what he has done for you. And you will go, if you have not already in your life, you will go in circles and in circles and in circles, and you will feel like, how am I back here? I should be over here, right? Sanctification, I should be up here now. I should be like level 26 Christian, but why do I still feel like I'm level three? Because the point is for you to get grace. That's the point. God wants you to understand his grace. No other being has ever understood his grace before. The angels look and marvel. They don't get it. They don't understand. But you have the privilege of understanding grace. Listen to me. Grace is a discipline. You ever thought about that? Living in God's grace is a discipline. 
It is something you have to be intentional about. It's something you have to be intentional about. It's not a natural thing because your default setting is to live for self. Your default setting is to be about you. Your default setting is to be your own savior. Your default setting is to climb your way up the hill. But God's saying, live in my victory. Be disciplined in understanding the grace of God. Choose. Are you gonna live in God's victory, in Christ's victory, or are you gonna make it on your own? Uh, It sounds really simple when I say it like that, right? But it's an every moment decision. In fact, it's an every second decision. Okay, you're feeling frustrated, you're feeling depressed, you're feeling struggle, you're, you're struggling. You have to stop and choose. You're not living in Christ's victory. I'll be real honest with you guys. I stress out about teaching. I've done it hundreds of times now, and I stress out about it. I, like Monday or Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm just stressed, and it's like all I think about is teaching. Because I, I don't know if you know this, but it's like I think it's the number two, the most fearful thing for human beings is getting in front of other people to speak. You know, it's like a statistic about that. Um, And it terrifies me, even though I know I can do it and I know I can get up here and I can teach. I stress about it. And so Wednesday is like this prolonged day. Like I get up super early and I'm studying and I'm thinking about what I'm gonna say and I'm trying to make silly things like this and get my notes all together and I'm stressing and I'm stressing and I'm stressing and about 4.30 hits and I have half an hour before my sound guy comes and I'm gonna help them. And I'm sitting in my office and I'm just like having a hard time breathing because I'm so stressed. And so I did this last week and this week. I went to my office, shut my blinds, I locked my door, and I laid on the floor. And I said, God, I'm going to choose right now to rest in your victory. Now, obviously, you can't always do that. <laughs> Hold on, boss. Like, let me climb, climb on the floor. And I'm not saying that. But you have to decide. Every minute, every second, every hour, to go back to the beginning, grace, to live in his victory, to say, you know what? It's not about me. Self, I don't want self. I don't like who I am. I like who God is making me into be. I like the things that God has planted deep in my heart, but I don't like who I am apart from God. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm gonna choose today to live in the victory of Christ. I know that sounds nuanced and it sounds vague, but you know what I mean. When you're at work and you're stressed, when you and your wife are in a fight, when your kids are yelling and screaming and everything is crazy and you can't pay the bills or whatever it is in life, you need to stop and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose in this moment to remember that it's not about me and I'm gonna live in Christ's victory. Amen? That is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is God trying to teach his people that if you live in me, you're victorious. And if you don't, you're not. God left some Canaanites in the land. So the story goes on. They're not all gone. And the book of Judges is them still dealing with these things. And they're gonna deal with them all the way up until Christ comes. So two weeks, we'll tackle Judges. But next week, worship night, would you guys stand and let's pray together? Lord, we, uh, we just make way too much of ourselves. Lord, we put way too much pressure on ourselves. We put way too many burdens on ourselves. We expect way too much of ourselves. And Lord, I just pray even now, God, for freedom. Just freedom to fall in this room on all of us that are broken. 
the freedom of being able to live in someone else's victory. It's not our victory, it's yours. Christ, we wanna step into that tonight. We wanna choose to walk the path that you've already conquered, that you have already blazed, the trail that you've already taken. Lord, would you help us to do that, Holy Spirit? I pray for peace to come, Lord, as we re-embrace not the milk, but the meat of grace, the meat of what it is to be loved unconditionally, the meat of what it is to be justified. It's all about you, Lord. All glory and honor and praise to you. And God, we know that revival and power come when we take our eyes off ourselves and put them on you. And we, we invite that. We invite that into this church, God, that we would be a people that are for you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Uh, we'll see you next week, same time, same place. We'll see you Sunday, actually. <laughs>